Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy there, folks. She's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and together we're your Temporary, temporary experts. experts. This week's topic is language. language. By listener request. Thanks, Michael. Yay! <laughs> but first, we have a new, our newly named segment, Fun Facts with Sarah. Fun Facts with Sarah. Fun Facts with Sarah. <laughs> uh, laser sounds. Slash updates. Yeah, just... The, the section formerly known, the segment formerly known as updates. Yeah, questions from last time. It was so, a Prince reference, if anyone missed it. Oh, uh, yeah. there we go. Yeah. We're all with you, Davis. Uh, so the first question from last time was, is hops related to cannabis? I thought it was, Davis wasn't sure, but it is! Uh, so hops are cumulus lupulus, and uh, cannabis is cannabis sativa, you know, Latin terms, and genetic sequencing has revealed that they are in fact two genera in the same family of cannabinaceae, which is under the order Rosales, which also contains the rose family. Great. There you go. I'll have to see a phylogeny. I'll have to see a tree. I'll work Otherwise, on it. this is all meaningless to me. <laughs> all right, you work on the uh, volcano song oh, and God. I'll get a phylogeny. <laughs> I think he's going to come up again. Well, every once in a while. So then the next question was, rice beer, is the process different? What's the effect of using rice? Does it change the color? And uh, using or adding rice into your mix does make beer lighter in color. Mm. So, fun fact. And uh, rice tends to produce a dry, clean taste. It doesn't have a ton of flavor. And it has a clearer color. Barley, which is normally used, has more protein in it, and that makes uh, beer more cloudy. Use rice. It's clear. In traditional Japanese lagers, like Sapporo and Asahi, uh, one-third of the grain used has to be rice. And other beers use rice, too, though. It's not just those beers. So yeah. Budweiser and Bud Light use rice in their beer as well. And extra fun fact, I read that sake is it's also made from rice. And we always think of sake as a bit like kind of like a wine. But it's technically rice beer since it's made with a grain and not a fruit. Hmm. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. But then they, it's... It's Because it's sake distilled then too? I think it's... No, it's not. Because most fermented. of it's only... Yeah, because you don't get like sakes that are generally in like the 30-40% range. Which would be... Like it's usually they're kind of like wine. In yeah. In terms of the alcohol content. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I always find... Sorry, the dry, like, you know, the dry flavor. Because, yeah. like, I like a dry wine. I, I guess I do kind of prefer, like, a dry-tasting beer. But, like, like dry-tasting liquor drinks. But, like, what is dry-tasting? I have no like, idea. Like, you know, because I think everyone knows what the, like, what what it tastes like. But it's just such an odd word to describe it. Yeah, you're like, is the opposite wet? Is it a wet-tasting beer? Well, like, I feel like in terms of, like, with wine, right, usually, like, a sweeter wine is on the opposite end of the spectrum oh, to a right. dry wine. Right, yeah. so is it more of that like bitter taste? I don't know. A question for another day. An update on an update. <laughs> but yes, there we so, go. Continue. Uh, the next one was I, was, I mentioned that uh, animal products are sometimes used as filter, and this is true. So it's used in the fining or the filtering part of the process of beer making, and you can get isinglass. Isinglass. I would yeah, uh, isinglass. It looks like Isengard. It does. Uh, kind of. <laughs> uh, and this is from fish. Or you can get gelatin or uh, pepsin as the enzyme, and that could be for, like, pigs or other animals like that. So if you use gelatin, could you also then make one out of, like, pectin? And then again, yeah, actually, vegan? 
yeah, I read uh, the, the, a lot of the research I was finding on this was on vegan websites being like, you can use pectin or like these mm -hmm. alternates to, there's a, a fungal one and like alternates to these animal products. Yeah, I like pectin. Pectin is a good, good, uh, Gelatin substitute. It's used in a lot of lot of gummy candies. If I can eat a gummy yeah. candy, it probably has gel or it probably has pectin. Pectin. In it. In it. Yeah. I actually prefer them with pectin. I think it tastes better. Well, I think it is, I like the consistency better. A little oh. bit chewier. Sorry, I'm a big gummy candy aficionado. Clearly, <laughs> I uh, once loved gummy candies, and then when I became a vegetarian, I realized I couldn't eat a lot of them. Mm -hmm. So now I have to be to read lots of labels. It's so fun. Uh, and I was going to try to make a. A segue of something you might read on a label, but it's not. Uh, so we were wondering how to pronounce this word, and it is congener. Congener. I don't, I don't remember how else we were pronouncing it, but it's congener. Emphasis is on the first syllable. And we also disagreed if muscle helps you to get not drunk or to get more drunk. And muscle indeed has more water than fat does, so if you have more muscle, it will dilute the alcohol drunk. more, mm. and you'll get less drunk. So why are all like, I feel like I've heard like muscle bros say that. They're like, oh, can a beer get too drunk too quickly? I did not look into muscle yeah. bros. <laughs> they're, they're class under their own. Yeah. <laughs> this was in general. Muscle mm. muscle in general has more yeah. water than fat. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and then does alcohol impact your prefrontal cortex? Yes, it does. Uh, it can impair the functioning while you are imbibing. And then also chronic use can reduce white matter in the prefrontal cortex and gray matter in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So yeah, alcohol, not great for your brain. And then Davis added a note into my I fun did. facts. I did. I made a, I made a horrific error <gasps> in last, last episode uh, when discussing the forces between molecules in solution. I used the word intramolecular, but those would be forces within a singular molecule. Yeah. It should have been intermolecular, so because this is between different molecules. This is a cardinal sin in the world of chemistry. It is. I've had my degree revoked. <laughs> this they came by my house. They burned my paper. Never again. No. Uh, but yeah, so I thought I would just make that quick correction. Luckily, I only said it a couple of times, but it should have been intermolecular, between molecules in a solution, between different molecules of the same substance. Very yeah. important scientific accuracy. It is. It's yeah. just those those two letters. They make they make all the difference in the world. They do. Mm -hmm. All right. There you go. Fun facts. So here we go. Okay, we're uh, all caught up. Today's topic. Yes, today's topic. Uh, so we're going to talk about that thing that we all use all the time that you're listening to right now. We're doing it. We're doing it right now. Language. Language. Yeah. So we this kind of came about because we were talking. We. We'd had that, like, the classic, like, why are et etymology and entomology so similar sounding words? And there wasn't really, like, a real answer. It's just, like, they're just, by coincidence, yeah. similar sounding. And we have, like, I, there's, like, a language thing in almost every one of the fun facts. Usually because we don't look up how to pronounce a word. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so Michael sort of gave us the suggestion of, oh, well, you should do an episode on language and to talk about, like, you know, um, how language evolves in general and a bunch of different things. So we came up with a few different concepts to discuss about language. So we're going to talk a little bit about like the evolution of language as, um, I don't know if you would call it a tool or what would you, what would you describe that as? What's good? I think as a tool makes sense or a, yeah, it's a, it's a communication tool. It's yeah. a survival tool. It's a, yeah. Yeah. Um, as a construct, I guess. So we'll talk about how evolution sort of was created in the human context uh, and how it's like, 
kind of moved in lockstep with human beings evolving and then how languages themselves evolve and change into new languages. We'll talk a little bit about how human beings use language, how we learn language, how translation works, um, why it's more difficult to learn a second language or multiple languages later in life. Um, and then also how language is used and kind of the impact mm -hmm. on uh, of language on human behavior and how language can be used to like affect psychology and control people. Yeah, and then we're going to talk just a little bit about very end about computing languages. We just started to look into that, um, and maybe if it's something that uh, people are interested in, we'll do more of it, like a a full episode on kind of computers in general, like the the, the invention of the device. Um, early like logic machines and things like that, and then talk about a little bit deeper dive into uh, programming languages like specifically. So this will be your teaser, and if you want us to talk more about it, tell us. Yeah, let us know. <laughs> uh, we'll let you know how to do that at the end of the episode, but Ooh. sneak preview, it's social media, no, it's Instagram. <laughs> Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. yeah. Alright, so, where do we want to start? How, what do we want to do? What is language what is what is language <laughs> the question we couldn't answer um in our pre when we were discussing this before um so i think like the best way to start um maybe not the best way but the way we're gonna start <laughs> we're forging ahead to talk about like the study of language itself yeah. like i think we all kind of we know what language is we know how to use it like we speak it all the time um and but what is language as a subject is studied as like linguistics. Yes. So you may have heard this term before. So linguistics means the study of human language as the as an object of scientific investigation. So this is specifically looking at language as many forms and its use in the scientific concept context to apply the scientific method to research about language. So there's a few pillars of what language is constructed out of that linguistics is concerned with. So uh, you may be familiar with the term like phonetics. Yes. So phonetics is like the sound, um, the production and perception of the sounds by humans. So these are the sounds that produce as part of language. Um, In like the written word, phonetics is like if a word is phonetic, typically the way that I think about it is you, you can look at the word and know how to pronounce it. It doesn't have any like weird tricks to it, you know? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when you're learning language really young like sometimes some of the early work that they do is like with phonics right mm -hmm. and it's like sounding things out and stuff like that yeah. same sort of idea um so then there's pragmatics which is language in context so how language is used in the day-to-day -day, things mm -hmm. like that um, this one you might be familiar with if you do a lot of computing uh, syntax so that's the arrangement of words and sentences um i don't know if you're a particularly skilled excel individual sarah I just taught myself a whole bunch of stuff. Not a whole bunch. I taught myself some things in Excel this past week. Oh, perfect. Yeah, so Excel, <laughs> really handy tool. But if you've done a lot of work in Excel, you know you can do like formulas and things like that. And, and you'll make syntax errors if you don't put things in properly. Excel has a truly overwhelming amount of functionality. It is. It's true. You can make like functioning <laughs> computers and stuff within Excel. It's quite interesting. Um, you can do like basic programming within Excel. Then you've got semantics, probably another one that people are somewhat familiar with. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you, the, that you're arguing semantics is a really common one in certain types of discussions. Uh, and that is literally like the meaning of words, like the very particular meaning. You've got morphology, the study of the forms of things. So the forms of the words and structures of sentences and language, like, things like that. Uh, and then overall, the study of the structure and usage of language, how languages relate to one another. Uh, and how their use and perception in, uh, affects human interaction. So kind of that broad everything. Uh, and then the last one would be phonology, which is the study of how language and dialects systematically organize their sounds. 
So, yeah. So some languages have thousands of dialects. A good, really good example is Tagalog, one of the Filipino languages. Mm -hmm. There's thousands of different dialects because of all the different islands in the Filipino chain of islands. Even English. Yep. Mm -hmm. Like Canadian English is different then American English is different than British English, but then even within that you have, like, East Coast Canadian language is yeah. different than, like, Ontario English. Yep. And that's when yeah. you start to get into things like different lexicons and yeah. stuff like that, right? Where they're like a bunny hug versus a sweater, right? Yeah. So if you're in Saskatchewan, you might say bunny hug. That's um, one of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> and it really, language really changes the way that we think about stuff mm -hmm. and, the, like, the way that we perceive the world. There's a great Noam Chomsky quote on this one. is. Language etches the gro the grooves through which your thoughts must flow. So what are some uh, subdivisions of linguistics, Davis? So yeah, so linguistics, um, like many sort of broader sciences, like you think about biology has all these little subdivisions within biology. Um, linguistics is similar. It's a very diverse subject. So there's things like, you know, neurolinguistics, which is the study of language in the brain. Uh, you know, so you might use brain imaging when you do these types of research. Um, and you're so trying like, to, yeah. Hmm? Trying to tell like what part of the brain is working with speech and all that. Yeah. And so neurolinguistics, especially with more advanced imaging has been really, um, influential into how we figured out like what parts of language might be innate to human biology, what parts of language are learned, like, and kind of really starting to decipher some of those things. So we'll talk more about that. Um, there's obviously kind of like psychological research so psycholinguistics how language and linguistics affect psychology can be used in that way um sociolinguistics so how uh language is used in a society one example of uh sociolinguistics oh, yeah. mm -hmm. that i think is it helped me understand this category more is code switching so i think probably people of our generation would be a little more familiar with this term but the idea is it can be two aspects one is switching between two languages based on which feels like it fits a situation better. So for people who are bilingual, it might be one language has much more of like a formality to it, whereas one is a bit more relaxed. So there's certain things that you wouldn't say in the more formal language mm -hmm. um, that you would be more comfortable saying in a more relaxed feeling language. But the one that I'm more familiar with, if with code switching, is switching between dialects, accents, language combinations, and mannerisms within social groups in order to project a particular identity. So this is people changing their language style based on who they're talking to, uh, what they're talking about, and uh, where they are, and all those things. So it's like the difference between how you speak at work to your boss yeah. to how you speak to your friends on a Friday night. So there's code switching, and there's there's like really innocuous examples like that. There's there's other examples where it's more like in the the black communities. We'll talk about code switching for a lot of people if they spoke in their like relaxed dialect. Their, their casual dialect to like a, a boss or someone they'll be it can have a really negative impact on how they're viewed and how their intelligence is viewed and all these sorts of things so that's code switching has been a lot more in the news in the last few years than i ever heard before there's also things like uh computational linguistics so if you ever see like online those like word clouds of like oh. particular pieces of work and things like that um so that would be like if you took a text and you analyzed it for the patterns of words that are used how frequently certain words apply and things like that you even see like simple ones like how much do certain artists swear in their music <laughs> and then it'll be like graphs of you know this person said the f-bomb this many times and stuff like that um those word clouds can be really funny because they just grab like the most used words so i've seen them put together before and you'll have like the biggest words always the most used and then they get smaller. Mm -hmm. And th there'll always be words like the and and. <laughs> just yeah. these, like words that do are not helpful for your data, but. I think sometimes like some data processing, you'll remove yeah. some of those types of words. Um, just because, yeah, they're not 
they are not. Um, they're not. The, they're not. They the don't imply any. Yeah, they don't yeah. imply any context. They're not informational words. They're just you know not filler words, but connective tissue essentially for yeah. sentences. That's actually interesting. If you're like editing work that you're doing, one of the interesting, uh, one of the best ways for like an essay or something is to look for instances of the word the and remove them, and then read the sentence back without the the in it. And you'll find that like, there's only like a handful of those that you'll use that actually need to be kept there. So like the sentence won't make sense when you remove them. And there's only a handful of times that that will apply compared to how often we use the in our like kind of first draft writing. So, well, I mean, you're probably not having to write too many like academic essays these days. No, but, but I'm even, super curious now yeah. that like when I write, especially like if I write for third sock and stuff, I'm yeah. paying attention to that now. Yeah. Ah. You'll use, you'll see a lot of those, especially actually, that's a really good point too, especially if you're writing something that's later going to be spoken. If you go, I used to do this when you write scripts and stuff like that. Is like you go back in and try to find instances of the word the, because you just people don't use it that frequently. You don't actually use it that often in speech. I'm gonna be trying to pay attention now during this to see if we say it. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so that so that's just like some of the different ones. There's tons of other um, subdivisions of linguistics, like you know, essentially, and then within subdivisions, you know, even smaller areas of interest. So, yeah. um, but that's just sort of like linguistics as a subject matter. So a lot of what we'll talk about today um, that we know about how language was developed, how it's affected human beings, development of like civilization and society and stuff like that is based in our study of like linguistics. So including like anthropological evidence and historical linguistics, things like that. All right. Should we forge ahead? Should let's we talk, talk jump, about, let's mm -hmm. jump into all that stuff that we know. That we know. Yeah. So much stuff that I researched. So uh, painstakingly. Um, we are temporary experts <laughs> in language. Yeah, this is going to be like, that's the thing. Like, this is... Um, it's an introduction. Oh, exactly. And like this, so we're going to kind of do a bit of, um, yeah, like a, a high altitude flyover of like this part of, or just like in general, this sort of study of language. Um, and obviously, yeah, you, you could you could do, there are people that do like PhDs and stuff like that. In this study. So, um, roughly around the world, there are roughly 7,000 languages that are spoken. Uh, and this is down from probably what was peak linguistic diversity around like 10,000 years ago or so, oh. right? Uh, so typically, you know, there's been, especially because our world is more interconnected than ever, there's been yeah. a bit of paring down of languages, you know, and for various reasons that we'll get into. Yeah. Um, bright, real bright spots in history, that's for sure. Yeah, um, humans being just great. Yeah. So, a uh, big thing about human language, and you probably kind of have an inkling of this already, is that like human language is very unique among the animal kingdom. So we do think about like, you can think about really complex examples in the animal kingdom, like whale songs and things like that. Or prairie dogs. Yeah, I knew. <laughs> I, yeah, so there are examples in the. Uh, Sarah has a prairie dog example that I can tell she's very excited to share. I was in a play where I had to be a prairie dog, so I learned a lot about it. <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> Theater teaches you lots of random things. Yeah, exactly. Out of context, though, that's such a just a ridiculous. Like, yeah, I'm just super excited I had to be about a prairie, prairie dogs. dogs. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's there are in the animal kingdom like examples of very complex communication between animals but it lacks some of the same features and complexity that human language does um so it's unlikely as well that any other uh species and this includes other hominids like neanderthals ever had language to the complexity that homo sapiens have language uh so again this is things like even like sign language in the great apes that's not the same as 
um, like human language or how it evolved. And that has more to do with the sentence structure and stuff, right? Yeah, so a lot of it has to do with the fact that, um, like, so if you think about like an animal call, like a prairie dog's chirp or a whale's song, yeah. that has a specific meaning based on like the sound that it is. It's But it's not representational. So there's not a universality to, you know, whale songs. It's like, oh, if you sing an E flat for 10 seconds, it means this, right? Yeah. It's the it doesn't mean anything universally. Whereas um, like in English, if you say the word apple, that has a consistent meaning. And then if you construct a sentence using the word apple as the subject say, the meaning of that sentence is inherent within the combination of words that make up the sentence. So if I say, Sarah, would you pass me that apple? That sentence has a complete meaning based on the construction of the words. Yeah. However, those words, if you separated them all out, do not convey the meaning of that sentence separately. Whereas the animal chirp, the sound, and the meaning of the sentence are kind of locked to each other. Yeah, and it, it seems like you can't, like, you can't break down the animal sounds in the same way you can break down human language, right? Like with mm -hmm. prairie dogs, a quote I found from a prairie dog biologist is like, <laughs> in, in one-tenth of a second, they say, tall, thin, human wearing blue shirt walking slowly across the colony. Which means they can convey a lot of information with, like, a single sound, mm -hmm. but they don't have, like individual chirps and stuff for each one of those like tall means this human means this blue means this yeah and i think a good example of this too is like so you think about crows have generally pretty complex social structures yeah. and a family of crows generationally will be will sort of learn some of the similar songs and they'll pass information through those songs but other families of crows that are not related to them at all and have never been exposed to them won't understand those same songs they won't oh. have the same meaning and Whereas, like, in human language, like, yes, over generational time, those two groups may develop different languages from different dialects and two languages that become completely separate. But if they both are speaking the same language, especially the same sort of root language, for the, for the most part within a single generation, those meanings will stay the same. Or there'll still be some connection to those meanings, even if, like, usage changes and things like that. Um, versus being completely non-referential. Like, so referential meaning the information can be exchanged between people because like the word has kind of like a like not universal yeah universal is such a dangerous word to use <laughs> um but has its own meaning like the word it has a discrete meaning yeah 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 exactly and it's a word can make reference to knowledge that you as a human should have sort of like a base understanding of or whatever this makes a little bit more sense when you talk about the computers because mm -hmm. computers don't have like referential meaning like if you yeah. tell a computer pick all of the bicycles out of this series of image like you see on those captures yeah. <laughs> right are you robot exactly a computer doesn't know what a bicycle is especially in an image like when the data is arranged in an image unless you've told the computer what a bicycle is in that specific you know type of code the way that that code breaks down yeah. in the computer's language that's why like machine learning is such a big thing now you like feed a, exactly. a, a whole bunch of pictures i yeah. have a friend who does this she'll feed a computer like hundreds of pictures of the same type of thing like a warbler like a bird mm -hmm. and then uh gets the computer to make images of it and they are they're they're like almost right yeah <laughs> but they'll always be like that one has an extra eye or like yeah. that's the wrong shape it's like that meme where the guy's like pointing at the butterfly the cartoon one yeah and he's like is, is this, this? <laughs> yeah so that's what you're is this a bicycle is this a bicycle because that's all a computer can really understand whereas like with a human being because of the way like the brain is so much more complex than the transistor that's like the base unit of the computer um you know when you teach a human being language you say okay here's this object this is 
Apple, this is what Apple is. That's your referential base knowledge. This right. is the sound that goes with this item. Yeah, or it's like, and especially like if you're learning a second language, right? I'll show you an object, you know, picture. This is a fish. If you're learning French, it's like, well, this is poisson, right? So, yeah. and then you continue to use that kind of referential knowledge to build up a language. Um, so, so sorry. So yeah. So human language is very unique. Um, human language also shares features, um, like the way languages evolve shares features to like Darwinian evolution. We'll dive into that a bit more as we kind of go through the timeline of it. We won't go too deep into like, so I made a joke earlier about phylogenies, right? Like yeah. you could draw like the species chart for hops and yeah. cannabis and stuff <laughs> like that. Uh, so languages also use similar kind of phylogenetic charts. So we won't go too deep into like the specific, like the proto-Indo-European language became Latin, which then broke into the Romance language. Like we won't go through all of that necessarily, um, but just kind of broad strokes. Um, Take us away, Davis. Okay. All right. So <laughs> it's theorized that human beings uh, rough evolved language roughly 150 to 200,000 years ago. Uh, and this would, and there's a, the school of thought really is that like language is this thing that may be, um, is very tightly tied to our success as a species, especially when you consider things like other hominids, not evolving language and being outcompeted and driven to extinction, right? So like the Neanderthals all went extinct. Yes, there was some crossbreeding. That's why human beings have some Neanderthal DNA mixed in. But for all intents and purposes, like the Homo sapiens were the only ones left. Whether they wiped them out or not, that's a question <laughs> for another day. <laughs> but this, uh, this reminds me of this like beam, meme or joke that I saw where it was like, someone was like, man, did you know that elephants have a sound for, hey, there's a bee here, like let's leave? <laughs> like, man, I wish humans had one of that. And then someone responded like, we do. It's hey, there's a bee here. We should leave. So it's like <laughs> yeah. you can you can you can uh, confer a lot of information very specifically, uh, and because of that, like stacking of language, the way you can build up with these building blocks of it, you can really communicate this complicated information in a like like direct, discrete way, and there there's not as much room for interpretation. Yeah, and you can store information yeah. in a different way. Like even when you're using like an oral history. Uh, and in one of the, uh, some of the research, they use this term like oral DNA as like, so as oral history started to evolve and people started to share like learnings and stories through language that, and then, you know, like, and as those things sort of speciated into different groups and things like that, that that oral DNA and the evolution of language moves much faster than evolutionary, um, like biological evolution right because that's over generations so within a generation you can have this very rapid changing of language and its meanings that can help convey more information and provide a uh what's wrong for like when you have an, a competitive advantage there we go well, it's right. like with yeah. slang right like mm. you can be like okay that sounds like a wonderful idea my good friend or you can be like okay that's deece bro <laughs> like you like you chop the words down and you mm. like they have new meaning and you're gonna you're gonna like give away how out of touch we are if you keep trying to like sprinkle slang into this episode. I am not cool, and I have never mm. been. So I'm just gonna make that a disclaimer for all the weird <laughs> slang I yeah, you will hear in this podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> so back to to humans learning language, yeah. like Sarah learned slang. Um, so. The history of language learning that it goes back 150, 200,000 years ago, when when human beings really sort of like when we kind of became the form that we would be kind of recognizable as now, like obviously small changes, but like mostly for like where the speciation kind of stopped. It suggests that hum all humans have a capacity uh, for language, all human groups, 
And this is backed up by a couple different things as well, because even though some languages might be very difficult for certain native speakers of other languages to learn, right? Like if you speak English, it's very difficult to learn, you know, some of the Asian languages like Mandarin and Cantonese, because the sounds are so different. The alphabet's different. And the alphabet's different, <laughs> and the structures are all different. However, all human beings have the capability to make all sounds that are made in other languages, even though some sounds are rarer than others. Uh, and, and in certain languages, some sounds are rare that are common in other languages. Like rolling your R. Yeah, like rolling your R or um, like in the, like in a lot of Asian languages like Japanese and Chinese, the L and R sounds are very yeah. similar. So L and R, there's not much of a distinguishment or uh, P and B in Spanish languages. There can be a, there's a wide distinguishment between uh, particular like bano and pano, whereas like in English, that, dis that distinction is not as used as often. We'll talk a little bit more about that when it comes to learning language because that has to do with, it's called like syllabic hierarchy. So some of some sounds in some languages are more common and so your ear starts to learn to prioritize those sounds. It's quite, and that's like your, the very early learn, uh, building blocks of when you're learning a language, particularly like in infancy. Um, so some of the evidence that supports the evolution of language is like the very old abstract and symbolic behavior in early humans. So this is the form of like engravings and uh, like cave drawings, things like that. What's the word for them? Um, something glyphics? Hieroglyphics? Well, that's like a specific language, yeah. right? Like I think hieroglyphics is a system. Petroglyphs? Petroglyphs. Sure. That's with like, that's rock carvings <laughs> and things like that. Um, some, there's some suggestion that it may have occurred closer to 40,000 years ago, but that's mostly just due to because those are the artifacts that we have surviving that show like late genetic change giving rise to language. But uh, some, but these as well, these artifacts are principally from European sites. So it doesn't really address like, you know, human beings would have spread out from parts of Africa originally, like 20. Fertile Crescent. Yeah. I always heard it. Uh, what did I always hear it called? Um, the Fertile Crescent is like. Yeah. Middle East region. Yeah, like present-day Iran, Iran and yeah. stuff like that, yeah. Um, where all humanity sort of evolved from yeah. and so, then spread out to the all corners of the globe. So the information, or the, the history from Europe is old, but it's not the oldest. Yeah, so exactly. start there. Mm -hmm. It was too cold. <laughs> yeah. So there, and then there's some genetic um, evidence as well to show the evolution of language or like when human beings like may have developed the... the sort of expression for it, uh, the ability for it, I guess. Uh, so there's a specific gene called FOXP2, which conveys fine motor control of facial muscles, oh. and it would have played a role in the differentiation of language. So in they've done um, gene like knockout tests on mice where they've inserted this gene and activated it, and it will change the sounds, the chirps that they make. Um, Whoa. So it, it shows that it controls the muscles around this area, right? Like obviously the mice are not developing more complex language necessarily, but they just have finer motor control, so their sounds change. I'm just imagining this is how Pinky and the Brain came to be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what are we going to do today, Brain? Develop more complex language by inserting gene knockout trials. To take over the world. Yeah. <laughs> so some things like, so in biological evolution, right, we often talk about the universal common ancestor, so Luca, um, last universal common ancestor, the, the specific circle of DNA that everybody <laughs> evolved from, um, and there would be some belief that oh well, there's an there must be an analog in language, but there's no real evidence of like the a mother language. Do you think kind of Tower of Babylon, if you're familiar with that story, or um, Tower of Babel, <laughs> Tower of Babel, not Babylon. Tell me, Davis. 
I, I know it by name, but that's it. So, I mean, Tower of Babel is a story from the Bible uh, that, you know, in prehistories from the Old Testament, that all human beings shared the same language. They we were all one tribe, essentially. And then uh, they started trying to build a tower to reach the heavens to be like God. God got kind of ticked at this. So he then he he smote them in the sense that he jumbled up all their language so that they could not communicate and complete the Tower of Babel. Gotcha. Other fun fact, in the Rockies here near Calgary, there is in, um, I think it's near the Valley of the Thirteen Peaks or something like that, uh, there's one that's called the Tower of Babel. Oh. It's very cool looking. Yeah. So if you go up to Lake Louise, you can see it. Nice. Yeah. Cool. All Thank I knew was like, there's a tower and there's language and then God got mad and then there wasn't language that they shared. Yeah. So. Because human beings are not to be like God. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Hubris, hubris to try to be like God. <laughs> so we lost our ability to speak the same language. We couldn't, couldn't cooperate. Now we all hate each other. <laughs> so um but there yeah so but there's not really any archaeological evidence to suggest that there would have been like a single mother tongue now there are root languages to the languages we have today but we just can't trace it back to like a single origin or originating point essentially makes sense yeah. like when people started people really early people started spreading out like they would have maybe there would have been proto-language or things like that but they we spread out pretty fast after evolving into what we are yeah and we we, we spread out so wide too yeah. right over the the surface area of the globe yeah. right and i mean if there's been differences in the like you look at england and the amount of different dialects that are within england like england's a small place <laughs> they didn't have to go very far and their dialect changed dramatically where like if you're listening to someone speaking with like a yorkshire accent and they're speaking with yorkshire slang like we probably wouldn't understand them because it's it's that different Mm-hmm. you know yeah well and that's yeah. a really small place so then if people are spreading it even further it's gonna even like it's gonna just compound yeah especially when someone speaks like full speed in a particularly strong dialect yeah. right it'll be hard to understand or yeah. pick up the the straight the you know the strange new lexicon words and yeah. the comparable meanings and things like that a couple things are common among all languages so even though the sounds might be used differently in different languages. All language, there's a set of common what they call phones. It's spelt like phones, like telephone, um, but you think more like um, phonetics, phones. Yeah. Um, these are these common sounds that make up words that appear across languages. So um, I, I wish I'd written some of them down here, but I think I forgot to do that. But like, you know, so certain consonant sounds are very common, right? Like, um, like co, k, or whatever, right? Like that sound. But um, le buff or whatever, like LBF, that's a really uncommon series of consonants, and that sound is really rare, right. and it's not going to occur in very many other languages, even though, so even though, like, you know, English and Japanese are not really that related in terms of their, like, evolutionary history of, of languages, but they're still going to, those uncommon phones are still going to be uncommon in a language like that. Well, even, like, with us in the, the fission fusion one, and we couldn't figure mm. out how to say Szilard because it was an SZ. An SZ is a very uncommon one mm-hmm. for a lot of languages. Yeah, exactly, right? So there's all these, so there's just certain sounds that the human like mouth and facial structure just like doesn't want to make. It's just not as easy <laughs> to make those. So they're rare, they're get, they're rarer in all, across language, across all languages. Yeah. It's something like, there's like 400 consonant sounds and about 80 vowel sounds or something like that over all human language, something in that. So it's about 600 distinct sounds, I think, in total, something like that. Um, uh, like I said earlier, all langu- all humans are capable of learning and speaking other of each other's languages. Some of them are harder than others, for sure. 
and again, like, so it's, there's just a lot of history to show that th a lot of this is like underpinned in our, in our biology, in our biology. Yeah. 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 And then, yeah, there's also all languages. I don't know if you said this, but all languages recognize tense. So that past, present, and oh, future. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they structure their words into sentences. And this, the structure of those sentences will be very, can be very different. Like the structure of a sentence in Japanese is different than a sentence in German, which is different than a sentence in English. Yeah. But they all structure them in like specific ways. Yeah. And, and again, like we were talking about with, um, you know, versus uh, like animal sounds and calls, right? Is that the lang what that sentence means is only apparent when all of its parts are organized together in that way, in yes. that, based on whatever language it's set in. Whereas for an animal sound, it in and of itself is the meaning. And those those two things cannot be unlinked. So that sound can't be used to create necessarily. You know, like, this is one of those things where I'm sure there's, like, there's a lot of species that probably are more in a gray area where, yeah, they're probably using component sounds to create more meaningful calls, but it's still not to the point at full distinguishment of, like, language. Yeah. We talk a little bit about, like, language evolves very similarly to Darwinian evolution, yeah. right? So if we think about uh, natural selection, right? Um, so some, we were talking about slang, right? And that a lot, yeah, well, you, like the example you gave, um, is sort of like, how are you doing, my fine fellows, versus like, what's up, bro? Yeah. Um, <laughs> slang evolves because it's a lot of times because it's a faster way of expressing something similar. So there's some rules to show that when when something can be conveyed generally in simpler language, the more complex words will die out. So you've probably heard, like, have you ever heard that thing about, um, like, the English language used to have over 150,000 different words or something like that, like, in Shakespeare's time? I mean, he made up a bunch of words. That's true. He did make up a lot of words. <laughs> but that, like, you know, the language has had a huge contraction since then. That's why, like, when you read Shakespearean text, like, there's words that you're just like, I have no idea what this means. Yeah. Or turns of phrase, like, I bite my thumb at you, sir, which, like, doesn't mean anything today, but had meaning then, would have been, like, flipping someone the bird, right? And they actually have a, a fun language thing about Shakespeare. Mm. So we know about, like, English, you have old English is very different than middle English is different than modern English. But Shakespeare was only in the 16th, like, late 15, early 1600s. Yeah. So... It's the Elizabethan age. Exactly. The age. And the Jacobian. Uh, but it's, so it's not like different enough that we read and we don't understand it. It's not like reading Beowulf or something. Right. Yeah. But it is like reading the, reading the lines now is very different than they would have been pronounced then. Because okay. Even yeah. by like people in England, because the, the way like English itself has continued to evolve and morph. So there's certain things like there's jokes that don't land nowadays because the pronunciation has changed so much. And there's lines that, that make a lot less sense now because or like they don't rhyme and there's all mm -hmm. these things. There's a really good example. Um, I think I'll, we're going to link to it. We'll put a link to this, this YouTube video of these people who study this old English and they, and how it like really not old English, but older English and how it really yeah. like Shakespeare to now. And Shakespearean all this. English. Exactly. This, it is sometimes referred to it that way. Yeah. Especially in the, his writings, but yeah. <laughs> and like you said, he made up so many words. Um, but there's this one particular example in As You Like It, where there's a joke. Uh, it's Jacques, who's like the really, he's like the, he's essentially like an emo character. He's like really depressed for a lot of the show. Um, but he meets this fool and he comes back and he tells this joke. And he says this is the funniest joke, but if you read it in modern English, it makes like no sense. 
it like doesn't it's not a joke it doesn't land but if you read it with the right accent it becomes this like really rude sex joke Mm. Uh, and these guys, I'm not going to say the words here because okay. <laughs> we don't do that on our podcast. Uh, but there's one, it was like our, hours pronounced differently. It came out a lot more like whore. Mm. Um, so there's all these... <laughs> we don't do that on that podcast proceeds to say the word. <laughs> there's other one. There's another one that I'm not saying, uh, but we'll link to it. Cause it's really, really neat seeing that even in just being like 400 years, how much the yeah. pronunciation has changed. And so even though we think we can understand it, we're missing the, the phonic, the, the oral sound of it, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And so this is almost a type of, there's this natural selection yeah. in a language, very akin to with um, species or animals, right? Mm-hmm. So there are words that are less fit to survive because they're just, you know, they take longer to say, they're more complex, they're not, they don't apply to as wide a range of situations. Um, yeah. Yes. There's got to be some aspect of rebellion in this as well, like a controlled evolution, because like our generation rejects the slang of our parents' generation mm. and they rejected the language. Like if a, if a, as Davis was saying when he was calling me not cool by trying to use language, uh, slang language, it's like if the, if the people in a different generation try to use the language of the generations underneath them, it's like, oh, like now that word's not cool, we can't use it anymore. Mm-hmm. So they develop new language. So it's like there's there's natural evolution and natural selection in this, but there's definitely also some artificial selection. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. I'm sure you'll get into that too when you talk more about like the psychology of language, right? Is that that sometimes that is it's a very forced evolution in that like your specific and and even to your point, right? Like a lot of countercultures will choose to use language, even will choose to use language that was previously used to deride them. Right. In order to reclaim like that language, right? Um, Where it's like so, queer and slut yeah, was, and all this. Yeah, queer is a really big one, right? Where yeah. certain generations of people won't, uh, of people in the LGBTQ plus community won't, don't prefer that term, and other people come at a time when that was reclaimed, and they do prefer that as a more umbrella term. So it, you know, it goes both ways, and then there'll be powerful groups that will try to, um, you know, co-opt language, co-opt language, or make certain language inappropriate or whatever or even just these natural shifts right like i would argue you know with all the stuff that's been going on the last couple years with and especially the last few months with like the trucker protests and stuff Mm -hmm. is the word freedom and the way it's been used is has become very different it's a more loaded term i mean it's been a loaded term for a number of years now but uh hmm? with marika yeah well exactly right so it's just interesting like when in certain contexts or certain um, political contexts those words change very quickly so sometimes we talk about like language you know, branching off into new languages. We talk about like French and Spanish as the Romance languages. English is like a Germanic language that also has like Latin roots. English is a language that just like stole from a bunch of other languages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And it also, and like, I mean, that's one of the things that's contributed to like what we now refer to as like English as lingua franca. So like around most of the world, a lot of places learn, even if they speak their own native language, they'll learn English, uh, especially because it's typically the medium of which like business is done Mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, so this, the idea of lingua franca extends from this, uh, the old Mediterranean medieval trading pigeon. So pigeon, P-I-D-G-I-N, um, is a term that's used for like a hybrid way of writing or speaking a language that it can be more universally understood among speakers of other languages. Ah. So sometimes you might, um, colloquially refer to it as like broken English or broken X language. Um, so you can actually go on like, for example, the BBC has a translation page that's in pidgin English oh. and it's like, it's just a sort different sentence structure, sound structure that would, that seems very clunky and awkward to an English speaker. Um, 
but is more widely understood by people who are learning English as like a second language or may yeah. speak um, other first languages other than English. Would a similar thing be like if you're, I was trying to learn Japanese for a period of time in my life uh, and I learned how many different alphabets, they have three alphabets and I'm like, oh, I'm overwhelmed. Uh, and so if you're trying to read and you don't know the, the alphabets yet, it's very difficult. So you can actually read Japanese in Roman characters. Mm, yeah, right? I know in Chinese they call that like pinyin. I don't know what they call it in Japanese, remember. but it's very, it is very similar, right? Okay. So yeah, you know, for, I know for Chinese, the characters, it, you know, it's very hard for an English speaker to learn there's, what all the characters so represent. <laughs> and there are, and it is, it's, it's very, very true, right? It's like, and there's no shame in it, but like, and that's the thing. So a lot of, like you go to China, a lot of the, all the street signs will have the words written out in pinyin, which is mm. in the Roman characters phonetically to pronounce the Chinese words. So, like, if you've seen the spelling of the word, like, Tiananmen Square, that Tiananmen is the pinyin spelling of oh. a Chinese character. Yeah. Cool. So all place names would be like that. Yeah. Where else? What else about the evolution of language? There's this word cognates. So cognate words. These are words that have common roots among, like, among different languages. I'm trying to think of a good example. German and English have a lot of them. Where like I think I think garage I, I don't remember what it is in German but they're like two very similar words or like um, they have similar sounds uh, and they they can be used by linguists linguists to kind of chart the evolution of languages. I know there's a lot of words that if you look at between English and German there's just like more s's or k's or things mm -hmm. like that in the German word but the the German and the English word you can you can guess what they mean. Yeah. And different languages have, like, these interesting little features, too, where, like, German is a really interesting one where Germany, ha uh, like, German has this, it's very flexible, and you can do a lot of, um, basically, you can smash together syllables that mean different things. So you end up, so Germany, yeah. Germans, <laughs> German can invent language uh, words very quickly because yeah. you just, like, smack them together. So things like uh, Schadenfreude is a combination of multiple words that mean different things yeah. that come to describe a particular, like, psychological experience i like uh you have things like i think turtle if you break down the german word for turtle it's like shield frog yeah or something mm -hmm. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> stuff like that so different languages have all these like little different quirks about how they evolve and things like that sometimes languages die a big, big, big example of this is you know we often refer to latin as a dead language uh so dead language generally refers to the fact that it's not used in everyday life anymore or one that isn't learned as a native language by a particular community uh, there's many reasons why languages die. A lot of them have to do with um, repression of certain languages. Yes. So obviously the legacy of residential schools here in Canada, mm -hmm. a lot of ind Indigenous people were forced to stop using their native languages and a lot of those languages suffered and had really big contractions in their usage as a result of that. There's also in, uh, in Scotland with Gaelic, mm -hmm. when the yep. British... Or when well, the, that would be Ireland. English Ireland, right. Yeah. When the English went in. Yep. And then... Welsh, yeah. though, even that's yeah. still happening in Wales, right? Like, there's a big suppression of the Welsh language, and there's very few people that learn Welsh, um, you know, as... Well, especially as a first language, but in just in those groups in general now. Um, so there's a lot of... Around the world, there's a lot of movements towards, like, the preservation of language. And what some linguists will do um, is they will travel to areas and they will try to create, you know... Um, dictionaries essentially of these languages as the groups that speak them are dwindling especially these languages a lot of them they don't have like a written history with them yeah absolutely and that can be very difficult there's a lot of stuff in um 
et research ethics, especially yeah. when you're dealing with indigenous groups, like that may, yeah, they may, they may have traditional reasons why they don't record anything that way. So, you know, you have to be very careful, you know, the relationship building and then the ethics of, can you record some of these things out of the interest of preserving them? It gets very complicated. Yeah. And it's just something that if you're researching that stuff, you have to deal with and think about in different ways. Just to talk more about the like, Latin, because it's the example that like a lot of people kind of draw yeah, to. About it's a, a dead, dead language. La yeah. So the reason that Latin is kind of a dead language is, um, so Latin was the principal language of the Roman Empire, the, the ancient Roman Empire. Um, so think like Caesar and things like that. And the Roman Empire very famously collapsed very, very suddenly and oh. was raised to the ground. And at that point, it was, you know, the Roman Empire was extremely expansive. And then those groups became, you know, the eastern edge of the Roman Empire and the western edge of the Roman Empire became basically completely disconnected from one another yeah. following the collapse. And then they just started basically to speciate into different languages. So split into, so Latin in particular split into the Romance languages. Romance actually coming from the Roman, right? Oh. Romance. Uh, and, <laughs> and then as well, like, and then split into like Baroque is its own type of language and things like that. I think Baroque may have evolved separately from Latin and it's all, and then it sort of just starts to break apart, break apart until you get all these different languages. Very cool. Yeah. But Latin is not technically extinct though. It's not extinct. Extinct is different than dead. So right. extinct is that they're completely gone completely gone yeah. that there's no record of the language or no one speaks it or no one even knows how to mimic the sounds that were made in those languages so i'm sure there are extinct languages that we have like examples of but maybe that like no one knows how to make use of yeah yeah but whereas with latin we're still like we use it in science right i started this yeah. podcast with some latin yeah uh and in i guess you say the official language of the vatican yes so that's a country uh, smallest the, uh, country in the world the spells in harry potter are all based on Latin? Yeah, so that, I mean, they're all kind of like, like, manipulated slightly to yes. be like a fantastical language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then it's a big one in religious ceremony, particularly in Catholicism. You can, especially if you go to like Rome or wherever, or, or the Vatican, they'll do uh, masses in Latin. Or even in an English mass, there may be parts of it spoken in Latin. And they used to only do it in Latin, and then only the the higher classes would know what they yeah. were saying. They started doing it in, in English and like modern languages and people got real mad. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a lot of like how languages evolve. And then just to, we're going to start to transition a little bit now into like human usage of language. And so a good little segue for this is kind of talking about like translation. Obviously you've got human beings, they spread out all over the globe. They start speaking completely different languages and then they start to come back into contact with each other. Uh, as civilization starts to develop. And again, this, this th kind of thing would have happened multiple times over history, right? Like you think about the Bronze, Bronze Age civilizations coming together, you know, the Sumerians and the Babylonians had a way of speaking to each other. Those societies collapsed. Some of that knowledge would have been lost. Different groups, hundreds, of thousands, hundreds to thousands of years later, come back together, have to relearn to communicate with each other after their languages, again, have evolved into languages that don't have direct translation yet to each other. One of the most common tools or things that comes up, I mean, especially if you've been interested in learning a second language, you've probably heard of like a program, Rosetta Stone. I had, that's the one I got. Is that really? That's, <laughs> yeah. that's just really funny. I've never used one of the books because I'm too cheap to buy stuff like that. But <laughs> I was like, I was committed. I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it right. And I got it. And then I realized it was teaching me more how to speak and understand audio, like yeah. to listen to Japanese. Mm. And it wasn't teaching me the characters as much. And then I started doing research on my own and I was like, this is a, this is this a whole is other level yeah. of challenge. <laughs> yeah. 
That's a that is a tough one to jump into for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm, the, I'm yeah. very monolinguist, so it was. Uh, <laughs> I, I set the bar really high, and then I just walked away from it. Yeah. <laughs> so, but the Rosetta Stone, the reason why it became the name of a popular uh, language learning software, is because it's based off of an archaeological artifact. It's in the uh, British Museum of Natural History, I believe. Something like that. I always forget the name of the museum. It's a big, well, big museum. We'll have it in the fun facts next time. It's in London. Um, <laughs> it's really cool. Um, but it's this stone This that was... The reason why it's so significant in current scientific discourse is because it was really important to understanding ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. Oh. So that's what makes it so important in a modern context. It was, how, it was a key stone to figuring out how to interpret those hieroglyphics that... And in particular, a lot of the English scholars were discovering in the early 19th century in uh, the colonies in Egypt. But the Rosetta Stone is a really interesting tool in terms of translation because it contains the same edict written in three different languages. So it has the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, it has the it has Sumerian, and it has Demotic script. So sorry, not Sumerian, ancient Greek and Demotic and Egyptian hieroglyphs. What is demotic? Because I read it as I demonic. Have no idea. Okay, hopefully. I don't know. All right. Well, I'll find out for you next <laughs> yeah. time, everyone. So it's from, the stone is from 196 uh, before Common Era, and it has a decree from King Ptolemy V of Memphis, Egypt. And so it's become, it's just a big artifact that talks a lot about translation and things like that. And it's very, very popular um, artifact to see at this one particular museum. But it, again, it just really shows that one of the easiest ways to determine how to translate something is to have basically keystone phrases. So that's what this edict, three languages, it says the same thing in all three languages. If you can translate one of those languages, you can build out, begin to build out translation rules for all of those languages. There's actually a, a story that connects with this. It's from this musical called Come From Away. Mm. And it's a musical based on the East Coast is a Newfoundland town yep. of Gander, which is where a lot of tr uh, planes were diverted to when the 9-11 when the... Twin Towers, towers fell. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of planes that were coming across the Atlantic, they had to stop in Gander. And there's, it's an amazing musical. Absolutely listen to it. It is so much fun. It's just like awesome East Coast music and like really... Yeah, it's one of my brother's favorites. Oh, it's so good. Mm -hmm. Oh, my mom took us to see it and... My dad even, who is not a big musical guy, but she put, made him come to it once. And then he was like, we have to take the kids to this. Mm. So it was great. Uh, but there's a moment where uh, they're trying to, one of the guys from Gander, he's trying to speak to these uh, passengers from, they just say Africa. They don't say where in Africa. Uh, they're trying to communicate across and they, they obviously have no base language together. But uh, the, this bus driver, he notices that one of the people is holding a Bible. So he, and he knows his Bible well, so he takes the Bible. And he he obviously can't read the language, but he knows that like mm. if, if he knows the sort of line he's trying to find. So well, he the, goes the to, verses, right? Exactly. Yeah. So he's like, so he goes to Philippians four six. Be anxious for nothing, and then they can start communicating with each other mm. because they have this this yeah. thing that they like know is going to be this, this similar enough. Well, there's a fixed point, right? Exactly. Like the way the Bible is organized into chapters and verses is universal across all translations of the Bible. And in fact, interestingly, too, that you bring the Bible into it is the um, it's another example of really early translation work is the translation of the Hebrew Bible, um, right? So the Old Testament is the same as the Jewish uh, the Jewish Torah, right? So a lot of those same. I texts. didn't know that. Yeah, like a lot. So there's a few additional books in the Torah than there are in the Old Testament of the Bible, but there's a lot of overlap, if I'm remembering okay. correctly. Yeah, because the Old Testament Bible is essentially like part of the Jewish Bible. And then 
Um, so they, that was written in Hebrew. It was translated into Greek uh, in the third century before Common Era. It's considered like the um, first major translation in the Western world. And then those ancient Greek translations are the basis of all translations that came later. So including like, well, I think then it was Latin and then like the Latin ones are generally considered as the ones that are like all other translations are built off. That's why you get specific things like the, um, the King James Bible. It's a very specific translation of the Bible that was commissioned by King James. There are so many different versions of the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's why certain one of them, some of them have like more significance or names because of reasons like that. Right. That's why King, the King James translation is, you know, used by certain groups or whatever. So in fact, interesting, this is like just an interesting like tidbit fact. The original translation from Hebrew to Greek is called the Septuagint because there were 70 translators. This is the myth sort of the wow. legend around that surrounds it. 70 translators were tasked to do this in Alexandria, you know, big center of learning in ancient Egypt. And they were basically like in isolated cells working on the translations themselves. And when all 70 translations were brought together, they were all identical. Whoa. And so that's the legend behind yeah. this translation, right? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, and then, yeah, sorry. And it became the source text for later translations. Another big example is uh, that sometimes comes up and people might be familiar with is the Epic of Gilgamesh. So the Sumerian Epic of Gilgamesh, considered one of the earliest um, literary works in the world. And it uh, was translated into many other languages from those early Bronze Age civilizations. Pretty cool. And that's why it survives today. Ooh. And so, and in terms of how translation is done, it really hasn't changed much uh, since antiquity. But there's sort of different um, sort of theories or strategies around translation. Um, so a lot of translation today not only involves like a word-to-word -word translation, but ch uh, translating for the meaning. Um, so there's a quote from Cicero. It's like, I did not think I ought to count them, the words, out to the reader like coins, but to pay them by weight, as it were. So this is to speak, so Cicero was a famous translationist, and this is to speak to the idea that um, he felt it was better to translate the meaning than the specific structure syntax one-to-one -one of a language. Makes mm -hmm. sense, because there's lots of languages that have words that other languages don't have like you mentioned schadenfreude yeah like english mm -hmm. doesn't have a, a meaning for that word but it's you can express it with a sentence yeah mm -hmm. you're like it's happiness at the misfortune of others but we don't have a word in english that means happiness at the misfortune of others yeah. right it's interesting too because now this is something you see this sometimes in the academic spheres as well because if you do a piece of research right like in primary literature especially unfortunately like language becomes it's very rigid you have to be very specific because you know, if I write a research paper, Sarah has to be able to read that paper and understand exactly specifically the meaning that I'm conveying. There can be very, very little room for interpretation. And semantics change meaning so much. Exactly. <laughs> so that's why a lot of like white papers or, or primary research is very opaque to the average reader yeah. because it has to involve the use of these big words from specific subject areas. And there's an interesting thing to say too is like, Whereas language tends to, for certain types of words, really pare down to the shorter, quicker, simpler words. For words that have complex meaning for like complex subject matter, they kind of become uh, immune to this effect because they have to be complex to convey the complex idea that they represent. Yeah, the, the amount of specificity yeah. that the word needs to convey. Like there cannot be any room for interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, when sometimes, so if like if I were Swedish and you needed to read the paper in English, and I knew that I needed to publish it in English to kind of reach a wider audience or at least translate it. Sometimes what you might do is you might take that text, 
you may have a computer or a group do a translation, and then you'll have that computer or group do the translation back. Ah. And you'll see if, in particular when it's done by a group, like with human beings doing it, you try to see if it can be translated back and maintain its original meaning on that sort of the second version in the original language. Um, and if it doesn't, then you know you have to tweak your translation because you're not conveying your actual meaning. Very cool. Yeah, it's quite interesting. So... So we talked about yes. what language is and where language came from and how it changes. But Davis, how do I learn a language? Well, Sarah, it starts in the even tides of childhood. Even uh, tides, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, because like, that's the thing, right? So when we talk about learning a language, people always jump to learning a second language, yeah. right? And the complexity of that, and especially as an adult, how difficult it is. Because... When we learn language as infants or when we learn to speak our native language, it's a very passive experience that happens when we're infants, begins when we're infants, and we don't really have any knowledge of it. It's just immersive, right? Like you're exactly. always in it. And then if you talk to a baby, the baby will babble back at you. And then they start understanding meaning mm -hmm. without understanding words, right? Like tone and all that. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because I was researching some of this and it was sort of saying that's like language learning like infants and the infant brain is extremely good at this. Like the proficiency that you can gain um, is extremely good, but it takes longer. And you don't often think about it like, oh, it takes longer for an infant to learn a language than it would for an adult um, in terms of actual like hour years and things like that, right? Because like you don't think about from one to five, like you're, all you're doing is like absorbing language. It, exactly. And it, yeah. 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 If we give ourselves the same, uh, the same leeway as adults to be like, well, yeah, I've been like trying to learn this language for five years, and other people will be like, "Oh, you don't know it yet?" You're like, "Bro, how long did it take you to learn English mm -hmm. as a baby?" <laughs> and we just don't think about those years very much because, like, those you you have to go from one to five to yeah. develop in all these other ways too. Like, you have to make it all the way to eighteen, twenty-seven, you know, to be fully developed essentially. But if an adult will still learn a language quicker. Could you know, with full like full commitment, learn a language yeah. faster than an infant? <laughs> but it's just because we conceptualize those years so much differently. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like the baby's not, we don't think the baby is like actively, studiously trying to learn language, mm -hmm. right? Like they are, but it's just their existence. Like it's yeah. just what they're doing. Yeah. And it's interesting because really early, the early years, like phonetic learning by age one will basically be an indicator of how well some, the, the kind of the maximum potential that someone might reach between like 18 and 30 months of age and then all the way up to five years. Wow. So that's why there's so much emphasis in early childhood around like language exercises and learning a language like reading like to your kids and all that it, exactly yeah. yeah so we talk a little bit more about that in an earlier episode we did on early childhood education yeah we talk a lot about it in that one so go listen to that episode mm -hmm, absolutely um so but it's interesting because they've done a lot of research into how what what infant brains are doing and so they, they have shown that there is evidence of what's called like statistical learning so this is just like that that strict breakdown of I hear this sound, this is what that was tied to, uh, and the triggering that basic like computational skills, because you're just like, you have to think about, this is a different, difficult thing to conceptualize, because you have to get outside of an adult brain that has like all these really embedded analytical processes that are happening. It's a much more, like you said earlier, like, it's experiential, it's just happening, yeah. right? And it's the first, the first time you hear this sound, you know, the first time you hear the sound mom and you associate it with this human being as soon as you start to recognize that there are other human beings yeah. yourself, right <laughs> so all these things are so happening so like all at once essentially it's like when you're trying to teach a dog tricks right like you, yes you have mm -hmm. to you have to 
you have to get the dog to grasp that this sound means do this action. Yeah. Right? And it can be like very difficult. And that's why they say like the only way to train a dog is to like train them every day. And you have to repeat it a lot because dogs don't speak like we do. Yeah. So they don't make, especially because they don't make these sounds. And then you have other like people who are training dogs, like really training dogs, they'll often use a different language. So the sound is very distinct. Mm -hmm. Like dog trainers will, they'll, all their dog like commands to the dog are in German. Yeah. Because they won't like accidentally won't. say these words. And then if the dog hears this word, they know like, okay, that one sound that I only ever hear in this context means I do this thing. This is a really good example, right? Because dogs and babies are so much the same. I know. And it's interesting too, because <laughs> the dog is not really learning language. Like the dog, and that's why they say like, oh, dogs can recognize like 300 different words. What they're really saying is they can recognize 300 different sounds com slash commands. Yeah. Right. And it's just like we were talking about with animal language earlier, right? Is that the dog is not picking up like ball, the concept of, Ball, yeah. <laughs> like you know the the like platonian like the you know plato's like concept of forms or whatever yeah. right like oh this is what ball means universal ball they're just thinking like ball and like this is the set that sound is tr tied to this object yeah. right rather yeah. than like the concept of the word as like in its own meaning um and that's what the human brain is trying to like construct and again what makes human language so different from like animal sounds interesting too when you're young the speech patterns that you develop early in life will last your whole lifetime so this is why it's sometimes so hard one for people to kick their accents and why sometimes you may have friends who like almost it seems like their family has like an accent of their own and it's because like you know you're going to pick up in particular the pattern of speech from your parents and your family members that are around you because that's who you're going to learn language from first and if they have a particular way of speaking an accent or certain dialect choices or vocal patterns, you're going to pick up those things and then they're going to be very difficult to change without like concerted effort in a lifetime. Neat. And again, this is comes from like vocal imitation because we want to mirror each other when we're learning how to be a human being, yeah. you know, from infancy to adulthood, you mimic that you naturally mimic the people in your environment, especially the older individuals, because that's how we develop, how we learn social interaction. So why it's important to model good behaviors for your children and the young peoples around you. Yeah, they're little sponges. Back to uh, me struggling to learn Japanese. Yes, Sarah, take, take. <laughs> so that's like, and it's so funny too, because it kind of goes back to our like um, New Year's resolution podcast yeah. too, right? Yeah. One of the most common things that people will give themselves as a New Year's resolution is this year I'm going to finally learn another language. And then they start and they, we talked a lot about like habit forming and yeah. things like that. And then you have the little uh, Duolingo is another big app. And people always yeah. talk about mm -hmm. like the owl. Because the the like icon, the mascot essentially for Duolingo is this little owl, and it like so people make a lot of memes of like the Duolingo owl threatening you. To oh do, yeah, yeah. To do your like five minutes of Spanish study a day, <laughs> like have you practiced yet? Mm -hmm. And there's some interesting <laughs> stuff I found too about um, why those things help, but also like um, why they never seem to quite get you, you know, kind of over the big over that finish line, really to, like get you to you know, a level of expertise or whatever. I've heard from friends who know a couple languages that like the things you have to start thinking in the other language, you have to think mm. in the new language because you can't be thinking in your native language and then translating and then speaking. Yeah. You have to start thinking in the other one. Yeah, some people yeah. say like, you have to start when you really start, when you start dreaming in the other language, that's when you know, you know it. Uh, and it's interesting because they say like the apps, they're really good, right? Again, for this regimented, like getting you into the habit of practicing, because that is an important part of yeah. learning a language. But they lack in this immersion and the and the natural speaking part of it. 
Uh, and it's this interesting thing where they say, like, um, one of the reasons why infants might learn language better, but not faster. Well, I mean, not faster has a lot to do with just the brain is not as developed. Yeah. But why they tend to learn it better and why they can reach um, high proficiency better than an adult can is because often adults will approach learning a language as like a problem solving type problem, right? Like it's, you know, I need, you know, I need to solve this problem by doing these, this set of things. Whereas infants more learn from this experiential immersion side of it. They do often say the best way to learn a language is immersion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's why there's so many like um, language exchange programs, like particularly here in Canada, there'll be a lot of stuff where you can go and you can live in a French speaking community um, for, you know, two or three months where you'll, or even French immersion school in, you know, in an English speaking area where you'll go to school where at the school you principally speak in French and yeah. all the subjects you take will be in French because it helps you learn how to use the language. That was one aspect of the Rosetta Stone program that I got. It had like, it was like for two months or three months or something, you had access to, it was like basically like a chat room where you could speak in the mm. new language with native speakers. Yeah. So like I would, I, if I ever got there, <laughs> I could have spoken in Japanese to native Japanese speakers and they could tell you like, oh, that's a weird way to phrase that. Or like, yeah. you're not saying this right or all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the things that often comes up when you're trying to learn a new language, we've kind of hinted at it a couple of times here, right, is that it's easier to learn a language when you're younger. Yeah. So there's generally a bit of a sweet spot for it. Um, and that typically is from, I mean, early childhood, obviously, that's when you're going to pick up your native language. But even for a second language, that window kind of from about 10 to 18 is when your brain shows kind of the most proficiency for that task. After 18, it very dramatically declines. So then they always say if you can learn two languages and then picking up the next one will be easier as well you yeah just like, very true you just mm -hmm. created like that noam chomsky quote right like it creates like the paths and the grooves in your brain yeah and then if you're trying to learn a new language you're like trying to force these new grooves and as we said with habits that's hard to do and if there's been studies that show like your brain will exhibit growth in the process oh. of trying to learn a new language that makes sense so it's very good for you know fighting off um it, i think it's something as well where bilingual brains show a um, later onset of the symptoms of like Alzheimer's and dementia. Oh, yeah. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to get them, but that your the onset of the symptoms comes later, which in particular for Alzheimer's can make is a bit makes a big difference because it's once the onset starts to happen that things tend to decline very quickly. So in learning a language, there are some things that, you know, some things within linguistics that have been studied. One of these is this idea of language universals. So it'd be kind of almost to that idea of a mother tongue. Are there certain sounds that are universal among all languages and that language itself is encoded in how the brain works? Or is it anterior to that? Right. So we were talking a little bit earlier about there's certain sounds that are rare across all language than others. So what they did is they made a collection of some of these really common syllable sounds, some of these uncommon syllable sounds, and they pay, played them to people of all different language backgrounds and tried to show that the parts of the, what parts of the brain responded to the sounds, the syllables. So when they did this experiment, they found that with the unfamiliar sounds, the part of the brain that would respond is called Broca's area, which is a primary language center of the brain. And it would show that an individual speaker is sensitive to language universals so that there's a different response to those common syllables than those that are infrequent. Huh. So it really shows that those infrequent languages or those infrequent syllables are common among all language speakers, all humans that can speak language. So it's more that 
we have evolved alongside language and they're kind of they're intrinsically linked in the brain cool yeah it's really neat this is the part this is one of those things it's like it's really like very difficult to kind of conceptualize when you start to think about it it starts to make a lot of sense and like it's really fascinating to think that there's this universal syllable hierarchy of sounds because it makes sense when you start to think about like yeah there are just sounds you don't hear yeah. in words and then they'll stand out when they do appear the odd time right the words that people pronounce odd and things like that right or hard to learn how to pronounce like mm -hmm. humans are all different but we're all the same right mm -hmm. so yeah. we all like what the language you're raised in definitely affects which sounds you make more and like yeah for if you're not used to rolling your r's that can be a very that can be a challenge or the like it's the sound in like middle eastern languages or like hebrew mm -hmm. that like yeah that like yeah kind of the back of the throat sort of sound or like you're saying japanese with the like the r and the l's and all those mm -hmm. sorts of things like there's these differences but because we're all humans there's certain sounds that our mouths are just better at making versus others mm -hmm. so it makes sense that across language you're going to have certain sounds that show up more just because of the biology of humans yeah and yeah so it's super interesting to think that like the rather than like language being this thing that was invented and can be completely manipulated like and given enough time would be like two languages like not even that two languages would be unrelated to each other, but that two, they would never be able to fully communicate. Like two humans, the language could become so separate as to never be able to come back together again. But that's not true because there is some linkage into our biology, into how our brains work. That means that those, that language is going to, it has to be able to be spoken by a human being because yeah. that's, it's human language, right? Like language helped us to become who we are. Yeah. And we would not be who we are without language and the way it developed a absolutely that's a perfect way to put it thank you um <laughs> so there are a few things that they just to go very quickly through some when they when you are trying to learn another language as an adult and i think these are probably some pretty common ones i think people will have heard them before a bit can i guess one i yes. have not read your notes yeah practice a lot yeah practice a lot <laughs> is a big one so sometimes uh practice just in general sometimes it's the way you practice so uh, in particular, they call it spaced repetition, so that you should review at particular intervals. So you start, so if you're learning a word, so you, that's one of the first, you want to build a, a lexicon, right? Yeah. Build um, a series of words in another language that you know. You start small, you practice, you um, you reinforce those words like day over day at the same kind of interval. Sometimes they say if you study before sleeping, it can help because it helps your brain process those things into long-term memory faster. Uh, and then as you remember individual words better, you can space them out wider. So you, you can learn new words, review them every day, and then as those words become more familiar to you, you don't have to review them as frequently, you can add more new words and keep building up that way. Um, I learned a handful of colors in Japanese that way. Yeah. So that's about where I stopped. Yeah, exactly. And that's why <laughs> that's often too, <laughs> why you often start with things like numbers, right? Counting is a really common one. Because, colors, shapes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Objects of particular interest like pets and fruits, you know, things that are nouns, especially, is often yeah. where they'll start. Because verbs are, and then especially because a lot of languages have different verb forms yeah. and how the verbs are used and because of the sentence structure, that that often comes late later. However, again, this is sort of one of those things where this is the problem-solving approach that, like, that more mature brains, adult brains, want to gravitate towards rather than that. Um, because sometimes what they say is actually, rather than focusing on individual words and the memorization of the language content, it's more about 
sometimes it can help if you think about a language as a means to an end. Mm -hmm. So you start rather than learning like, oh, well, this is what apple and orange is. It's like, no, this is how you ask for the, where the bathroom is. This is how you order at a restaurant. This is how useful phrases. Yeah. How, where's the train station? Those sorts of things sometimes can help people because it's more practical. Mm -hmm. And again, it's more how the language is actually used rather than like brute force computational problem solving. It would help you learn the structure as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Really right. Get more used to it. Um, the other one is, uh, last one is to constantly consume content. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, this is one, when I was traveling in Europe, you know, a lot, almost in all, every European country, everyone takes English as a second language in, uh, junior high, high school. Yeah. And one of the things that a lot of people I talked to, they said really helped with their English was it was the proliferation of like Netflix. Because with Netflix, it was really easy to get access to all of this English language content. Whereas previously, you would typically get stuff that was on like your TV networks or whatever. So it would either be dubbed or in the native, like it would be native language programming. But with Netflix and stuff, it meant that you could watch all of these movies and all of this content in English with subtitles readily available. And it was, it helped, it helped them develop the language, like the ability to speak English faster than just their classes was. Um, that's why I picked mm -hmm. Japanese was cause it was, I was like, okay, I want to learn another language, but there's nowhere in my daily life that I consume another language mm -hmm. or that I'm even close to one with the exception of watching like anime. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I really like studio, studio Ghibli movies and I would love to be able to watch them in Japanese. Like the translations are beautifully done cause they put a lot of energy into making sure they're good. Yeah. But like, I would love to be able to watch these shows cause I watch them all like with subtitles anyway. So if I don't have to have the subtitles and I can just listen and hear, it would be better. So mm -hmm. it's like the only language I ha have any like somewhat consistent interaction with is Japanese. Yeah, exactly. And uh, this is even one of those things they say, um, if you watch movies that you're familiar with, it can oh. be really helpful. So um, often that's why they'll give, um, you know, children's books as homework and language classes. Uh, Tintin is a really common example. Comic books are really good. Uh, Tintin, it's a comic book principally, um, is a really good example because there's images that go along with the words so it helps contextualize. And then if you watch movies like Disney movies that you're very familiar with in another language, you may, all, you may probably already have an idea. You know the action in the scene already and you might even know some of what the characters are saying. And then you're hearing it in another language with subtitles and stuff like that. Or, and even sometimes they say, listen without subtitles, especially if you're familiar with the movie and try to kind of piece it together. Yeah. There's going to be so many, so many ideas. There's so many movies that I have memorized Yeah. that like, yeah, what a good way to do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and again, this is just this idea of if you're in a way you're immersing yourself in the language, um, especially if you don't have people that you can practice speaking with. So uh, that's a lot about language in general. Language is a tool. It's very kind of empirical device built um, purpose. But when language gets used, some interesting things can happen. Yeah. And so this has a lot to do with semantics, as we mentioned, but language can really be used to control the way people think. Yeah. And uh, as I've said a few times on this podcast, I'm very interested in cults and the study of cults and how they form and all of this. And language is a huge tool used in cults and abusive relationships in general. Mm -hmm. like Indoctrination, the, one of my favorite words. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like, just, yeah, if you can control the words people use and what those words mean, you can control how they think. Yeah, and you can control absolutely. how they act in the world. Um, and part of this is if you think about like a cult, most of them or a lot of them have specialized language. Right, because it, it, it denotes the in group and the out group. Even a place like Corfit, 
which has been accused of cultish leanings. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it is like, there's a language, there's terms that now you use and you know, that become like integral to your going through of the world that other people who are not part of that in group are like, what is this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what are these weird words you're using? Um, and it's, we feel special. We feel like we're part of this in group We're we're these special people. An example is like pig Latin. Like when you were a kid, if you learned pig Latin, then you could communicate in this like secret code to your friends and people didn't know what you were saying and you felt like so powerful. Well, and people naturally want to form groups. Yeah. And then in particular, if you're forming insular groups within other groups, there's a sense of belonging that comes along with that. Exactly. Belonging and superiority. Yes. So. Mm-hmm. We, we, the members of this group, know something that you, the members of the other group, don't know and can't know unless you join our group. Exactly. Which is a problem with cults. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> because it's really the what we will do an episode on cults. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I just very badly want to. Um, but like that that designation of in group, out group, with us, against us is very big, and language really helps to develop that. Um, and the the language as you move kind of through as people progress through a cult or deeper into one, their experience often starts with more innocuous language. And then as, and they might introduce weird terms to you, but they can explain them away. Mm-hmm. And then the further you go into it, like the more damaging these terms become or the more controlling these terms become. Mm-hmm. Um, like some of the first classes in Nexium, which was a very modern cult. It just uh, got taken down a couple of years ago. And then Scientology, another really big one. Yeah. Um, some of the first classes in these groups are just called communication. Yeah. Like who wouldn't want to learn communication? You don't you don't know the, all the stuff lying beneath the surface of it. This is why, like in a debate, one of the first steps in a procedural debate is define your terms. Oh. Because, like for example, in Scientology, I can't remember what the name of it is, but they the test they give you when they're kind of indoctrinating you into Scientology, it has a specific name, and it's like a made up word. I mean, all words are made up, but if you it's a more it, recently made up word exactly. If you redefine, if you make up a word you can define whatever that word means. And that, and the truth of what that word's definition is, what that word means, is whatever you choose to make it. And so, redefining yeah. words is actually a big part of it as well. Um, there's an example I came across, it was from, it was Kundalini Yoga, which was uh, the big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is the idea of an old soul. So if I said old soul to you, what does that make you think of? Like, what, how would you define that? If you've heard it before. Yeah, I mean, I've heard it before. Usually, I think in reference to people that are like, more mature than their age. Yeah, wise beyond sort your of. years. Yeah, wise yeah. beyond your years, yeah. Uh, you nailed it. Um, but <laughs> Good job, Davis. Uh, but in Kundalini Yoga, they took this old soul, which was generally be like a compliment, you know, and they changed it to uh, meaning that like, you are someone who has like has to keep reincarnating because you keep getting it wrong. Mm. So you're not able to like uh, become enlightened and ascend as it were. Yeah, escape uh, the cycle of samsara. Yeah, so mm-hmm. by saying that you're an old soul, it's an insult now. Now it's like, it's your failing. So this is this cultish or abusive redefining of language mm. to mean new things. And it's and it's to control you. It's to control the way that you think. And this, uh, it ties in as well to gaslighting. So we've heard gaslighting a lot in the last few years. It's really become like a buzzword. And it gets overused a lot uh, to just mean like anyone who lies or any of these sorts of things, gaslighting. But what it really means is telling people that the reality is not real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there's a spectrum of it, but uh, there's a, a cult researcher, Amanda Montel. There's a really good podcast out there right now called A Little Bit Culty. 
and it's by two of the high-ranking people who left Nexium and helped to bring it down. And she was on this show, and it's very good. Highly recommend. A little bit culty. Um, and she called gaslighting a campaign to make you mistrust your reality. So you can manipulate someone into questioning their own valid experience, feelings, and belief. And this is really, it really throws you off balance. If you're like, ah, uh, yes, this is the, this is what just happened. And then someone comes along and they go, actually, no, that didn't happen that way. It happened just this way. Mm -hmm. And it usually, it often starts subtle and then it can like, it can get more and more nefarious. Yeah. As you go. Yeah. And it, so it's, it's this unsettling, it, it disorients you, right? So if you feel disoriented in a situation, so because language was twisted or uh, financial instability, you have a lack of support outside, you will start looking towards the nearest authority figure or your nearest source of support and comfort to tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. And this is how you get controlled by these people because, uh, and this can be anything from a big cult like Nexium to a one-on-one -on -one abusive relationship where someone is gaslighting and controlling the language and altering their, your perception of reality. And then you start looking to them because you go, oh, I can't do it on my own. I need them to tell me. Yeah, they're invalidating your perception of reality. Exactly. And so installing then, their own perception. Yeah, and they're invalidating your trust in your ability to figure out reality, so you have to listen to them. Uh, and gaslighting leans into thought-terminating cliches. So these, again, from Amanda Montel. This is uh, like a catchy stock expression that's easily memorized and repeated and aimed at shutting down independent thinking or questioning. So these are not just in cults. There are a lot from cults, but there's really common ones like it is what it is, hmm. right? So it gets you to stop questioning or thinking or like pushing beyond. So one from Synanon, which was an early cult in the, it was in the sixties and it really formed the basis of a lot of uh, more modern ones. And it was act as if. So mm. the idea is like, oh, I'm feeling this certain way. Well, act as if you're not, or act as if you're already here. Um, so the idea is like, like you could say like, oh man, I'm so tired. I don't know if you can, if I can do that today. It will be act as if you're not tired, which means that you can work harder. Uh, and you, which means that you can be more productive for this group, right? Cause it's, it's always said like it's for you, but it's always <laughs> for the group. And, uh, it really, it would break down to in like something like sitting on is act as if you believe in the protocol until you do, because the leader, whoever made the protocol knows more than you. There's a whole trust in the process, mm. right? Like mm. all of these buzz phrases, they, so many of them can be brought into thought terminating cliches. Can you think of any others, Davis? Oh, I can think of tons. I find it, I find this really interesting too, though, because like, um, I mean, I think one of the reasons why these types of um, like idioms and things like that become so popular in human speech is because humans overwhelmingly have the desire to find like e easy solutions really. I mean, yeah. like that we're wired to like you, like it makes sense for a biological being to look for the simplest solution to problems. Yeah. Um, but people often are looking for like a panacea. It comes in, especially in medicine and in mental health as well. So like these little phrases that like are going to magically solve all your problems, they're very appealing to the brain because it, it offers a solution in a tight, neat little box that's yeah. easy to unpack. Um, and you don't have to yeah. think about it anymore and you don't have to question it anymore. You can just yeah. accept it and move on. And I find it very interesting because it's this very, I would say there's such a thin line between like these types of things because there still would be thought terminating cliches, but that are very useful Yeah. and like, and are of use. And then when they're abused and become very detrimental to you, yeah. right? So um, like my mom has one that's really common that I actually quite like to use in my own life, right? Where it's like, fake it till you make it. 
And that's definitely a thought terminating cliche because the idea is just to say, well, like if you're in a bad mood, you have to pretend to be in a good mood until mm -hmm. you're not anymore. But for specific areas of application, I find it incredibly valuable as a tool to use because uh, in particular, if you're just like grumpy for no reason and you feed that feeling, you will continue to be grumpy. But if you don't feed that feeling and you say to yourself, no, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to choose to be in a better mood. A lot of times it can help you pull you up, pull, pull yourself out of that. But there's definitely a nefarious application to something like that, where if anyone was ever coming to you with any, you know, feelings of dissension and you were just sort of like, well, you got to fake it till you make it. Like you can use that to put another person down and invalidate their experience. Exactly. And this happens a lot. This, this ties into toxic mm. positivity and toxic productivity, Yeah, which happens. So this is like the idea of you always have to be happy. There's toxic positivity. It doesn't mm. actually, you're not going to solve any of your problems and they're just going to like fester and get worse. But like, you're not going to make anyone else uncomfortable in the meantime, toxic positivity. Mm -hmm. uh, and then toxic productivity is this idea. Like you always have to be hustling. You always have to be working. <laughs> and it, it does happen a lot. Like in cults, there's a, cause sleep deprivation is a major like control method. Mm -hmm. um, so if the idea is like, Oh, well, you just have to work harder. You're just not working hard enough. That's why you're not getting this. You just yeah. have to try harder. And it's how I only had two hours of sleep last night. What are you complaining about? Exactly. And like this happens a lot in modern workplaces as well. Where it's like, well, like, well, I deserve a raise. And it's like, well, you have to go above and beyond. Yeah. Right. Like you have to work harder in order to earn it. And you're like, I am doing my job very, very well. And you are like in a lot of circumstances already underpaying me. Mm -hmm. So I shouldn't have to prove like the, this, this toxic productivity of like, yeah, the constant hustle and never taking a break, never taking a vacation and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and so this happens a lot in MLMs multi-level marketing yeah uh, yeah right so language also very important in multi-level marketing schemes yeah they're yeah. they're essentially cults that's why right? it's like, like that's why it's like, <laughs> you're a business owner you're not yeah. an employee you're a hashtag boss babe exactly yeah <laughs> and so it's like yeah it's the idea of like you just have to work harder and believe in yourself more and then you'll succeed and if you're not succeeding it's because you're not working hard enough and you don't believe in yourself it, enough. yeah yeah and uh so like there's there's an idea from amway which is one of the really big mlms of like stinking thinking so if you have nick and it's it's used in other stuff too but uh amway was the example that amanda montel gave uh so it's like stinking thinking is negative thoughts and these will hold you back from success because the system is perfect mm. so mm -hmm. the system if you yeah. did it right you'd be a millionaire in a year but you are failing so it puts all the onus on the individual and says the system is perfect when actually the system is horribly literally broken, literally impossible to, yeah, yeah designed to for you to not succeed uh, absolutely it'd be like um, if you programmed a video game that was literally unwinnable yeah <laughs> and that was like sort of the joke was that like oh well you can't beat this game because that's how i've coded it exactly um yeah and then this can, so ridiculous exactly and this can push even further into like well okay you have these if you have stinking thinking thoughts so you got to get rid of them and then you have to get rid of all the stinking thinkers in your life yeah right mm -hmm. so you gotta you gotta cut out the negative people cut out the toxicity which can be very helpful because if you have people in your life who are just like always negative and they're always bringing you down and, and they have no it desire to support you or any of that stuff, mm -hmm. it can be bad. But if you go too far, if you push too far into this, like with a lot of these ideas, you get into dangerous territory where you now you think of people who don't think like you, you think of them yeah. as suppressives. And this is like, that's yeah. a term from Scientology. It's a term from a bunch of other cults as well. But these suppressives are people who you can dehumanize them really easily. Yeah. You, which means that now you, they're fair game. You can attack them. You can do whatever you want to them because they're suppressives. They're trying to prevent your they're success. They're other. They're the others. And not just others, but like 
the othering. Like they're actively against you others. Yeah. Right? So it's it, it could be as simple as cutting them out, or it could be like what Scientology does, where they really like chase down people who leave. Yeah. It's it's interesting, right? Because like a lot I don't and not to get too into it, right? But yeah, like a lot of the psychology of cults is just this like it's it's that the jump over the thin line of like what helps and what like that that's why these things are so effective, right? Because they yeah. play on what works those keys to human psychology that you can really, the levers that you can really pull to get to influence people and it takes them in a really nefarious place to a really nefarious place to their, to their extreme essentially. Exactly. And a lot of people who join cults, they're people who they are just positive and hopeful and they mm -hmm. want to make mm -hmm. positive change in the world. And so they join this organization larger than themselves thinking they can do it that way. And then it, they're all of this optimism gets twisted mm -hmm. and it gets yeah it gets put to use for a nefarious purpose that's why as well it's so you have to be very careful like especially with multi-level marketing schemes but just in cults in general right because a lot of times people will think like well i'm impervious to this kind of stuff there's no way they i would be taken in and everyone then, is susceptible <laughs> yeah and exactly because it's all playing off of the same things that are rooted almost to an extent in our biology because we deal with language from a core place in how our brains are wired exactly uh, and the type of language can really affect how we perceive someone as well. So mm -hmm. uh, a lot of like cultish type leaders will start combining. And this is not just like the big cults. This is like the like mental health or wellness influencers on Instagram, mm -hmm. right? So they combine scientific terms or therapy terms or these like actual yeah. terms with these discrete meanings with mystical spiritual terms. And this makes them seem like they're tapping into something like the next level, something higher and beyond even science, mm -hmm. right? It, it So it makes you see them in a new light. And then my last point for the sort of language control is word salad. So in a, in a scientific concept, uh, word salad or aphasia is a jumble of extremely incoherent speech as sometimes observed in things like schizophrenia or dementia or Alzheimer's. You have these strings of words that don't really mean much. Um, uh, a definition from the Merriam-Webster website, my favorite, uh, is like a salad encased in jello, a word salad doesn't make a lot of sense. The individual components, vegetables, words, cocktail olives, lime gelatin, might all, all be right, but they don't work as a coherent whole. When was this definition written in the 60s when they were putting everything in jello? I don't know. There are certain things that just should not be put in jello. There's like savory jello desserts. I understand. It's sort of funny too because like aspics. Well, exactly. And there's like a whole thing. And like some of them are actually really hard, like culinarily to make. And they're from really like good. old French recipes because gelatin was really hard to get. So it was like quite the delicacy. But then when gelatin was really widely available through jello, it was still like, a, you know, it was like such a fancy food. Sorry, this is like a food yeah, history thing. Yeah, all the thing, things that I, I thought were going to get I hate it. I did not expect <laughs> the jello salad. Anyway, but yes, sorry. Just it's, <laughs> a, it's a very visceral example as Davis has just uh, demonstrated for us. So uh, the, the word salad can be um salad and jello gosh <laughs> but that's what it's like if you listen I, yes right? yeah. like if you listen to these people especially yeah. so if you if you learn anything about nexium uh n v i x m it's spelled really dumb nexium uh and the the leader keith ranieri he was really good at word salad so it's like a string of smart sounding words that mean nothing uh and so saying word salad. Oh, this strikes me as people like Ben Shapiro and ben like, Shapiro. uh, what's his name? Like 
the U of T lecture to Jordan, Jordan Peterson. Because I, yeah, you hear some of, some of the stuff comes up online. Sometimes I see it just because I like to cringe at it. And like, yeah, it's word salad kind of stuff. It's just like, oh, here's a bunch of really big words strung together in a way that like sort of makes sense if you don't squint and look at it too closely. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, word salad, it sounds smart, mm -hmm. but it, and it, it might have a nugget of truth in it, mm -hmm. but it's like wrapped in this nonsense. Or it's also called, like, empty words. Yeah. Right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then uh, going back to aphasia for a second. So this is the, le like, word salad can be very deliberate. And it can be that it puts you off balance. Like, if you end up in an argument with someone who starts using word salad against you, it's impossible to argue against because this, the argument itself is nonsensical. Mm. The the things they say will, like, they'll, like, run around in circles and they'll you'll be arguing with A and then they start... They go on this tirade and now you're at F. So then you're trying to address each point on that list. And then they get mad that you're not like talking about what you started talking about. And you're like, well, you changed it. But mm -hmm. then they, it's, it's very disorienting and very like upsetting to be mm -hmm. in these arguments. Um, but back to aphasia. So with things like uh, dementia or Alzheimer's, aphasia can be like a loss or impairment of the power to use or comprehend words. So less deliberate, less intentional, right? Um, and then there's paraphasia, which is sometimes used as a synonym of word salad. Um, and then there's also paragrammatism, which comes from paragram, which is a pun made by changing the letter or letters of a word. Um, just kind of like mixing up little things. So like saying my sentiments exactly instead of my sentiments exactly. Hmm. Okay. Like I have a family member who does this a lot. They'll like Pacific and specific. Is this things like, <laughs> uh, but would this cover things like, um, not irregardless, um, like, I couldn't care less, right? Because it's, like, a lot of people will say, I could care less, when it's, it, the yeah. pro it should be, I couldn't care less, because yeah. if you could care less, it implies you, there, you was, care. there yeah. are lower <laughs> levels of which you could care. Yeah. Yeah, where, um, as I couldn't care less at the bottom of my cares, but anyway. I don't know if that um, one goes as much, as yeah. this is, like, this is a pure, like, word switch. Words, like, okay. Yeah, Rather specific than and specific. The, yeah. yeah. Like, okay. oh, I specifically want to go to the specific ocean yeah interesting and there so, yeah. you go that's some uh, language is uh it can be used a lot to control and to uh alter the way that we experience our world and that's that's why semantics matter and some people will be mm -hmm. like oh you're arguing the semantics like it doesn't matter and you're like but it does because language yeah. shapes how we see the world it shapes how we experience the world and it shapes the actions we take this is why texts like 1984 are continue to be yeah. so pervasive because his because Orwell's exploration of language specifically and the fact to the fact that that book has a lexicon in it yeah. because he's invented so many manners of speak to represent how the people have been manipulated like these specific words like double think um, and things like that are used to manipulate the people in the society. That's a good example. Yeah. So to use the segue of using language to control things wanted us to very quickly do a bit of a, a, a bit of a toe dip a little preview. Know, as, a, as opposed to a deep dive um, <laughs> into the realm of computer languages a splash. and specifically how computer languages relate to human language um, because there are similarities but there are also like key differences one of the examples I gave earlier right is that human language is referential it has a basis in common knowledge and experience. If I point out an object to you and I say, this is an apple, this is the word for this object that I'm showing you, apple, I could tell you that in a number of different languages, but that word or series of words in many languages are connected to this object. They're linked in sort of re into the real. Um, but computers don't have this kind of bank of common knowledge. A computer at its basic form is a switch. 
it's a transistor between and what we learned really early on so this is where we get into like binary which is the basic human uh sorry it's not the basic human language binary is the basic computing language because it's based off of the way the transistor works and really early on when they were starting to program these things and figure out how the computer as a machine worked they realized that the easiest thing to differentiate between is an on and off state. Binary states are really easy and particularly for computers to understand. So it's either on or it's off. It's a one or it's a zero. Like a yes or a no. Exactly. Whereas if you wanted to have, like sometimes they talk about a ternary computer system. So you would have zero state, one state, and two state. Oh. But you would have to differentiate between off, on a little bit, and on a lot. Which becomes a lot more complex. Yeah. Like they've done, they've built demonstration systems of ternary computing systems. They can solve certain types of problems much faster, but the computing and the uh, and the engineering basis of them is way more complex. Makes sense. It's like a gray zone. Yeah, right? exactly. Like you can think in black and white, but to get anywhere, really, you have to think in a gray zone. Yeah, and then it and then it starts to play into. But it takes like, a lot more effort. Yeah, and with a computer, <laughs> then you're dealing with issues like, well, if you have a little bit of electrical interference, is that going to trick the system into thinking that it's partially on, oh. even though it's just break? But if it's on or off, that can be. It's easier to protect yourself against little bits of interference. You say, well, that's still not on because on is this exact threshold of power. So. Basically, everything needs to be taught to a computer to be understood in those zeros and ones, the specific number of switches that are on or off. Computers now have thousands and thousands upon thousands of these little switches built into our mother, the chips and our transistors and stuff. And this is where, you know, it used to be, that's why computers used to take up whole rooms. Yeah. Because the switches, we, we could only make them so small, our manufacturing was only so good. Now they can make them really, really teeny tiny. So they fit in your pocket. Yeah. You're you're a supercomputer you carry around with you. Mm -hmm. But human beings need a way to communicate to the ones and zeros of the computer. It used to be that you'd, have to, you'd literally have to do those switches by hand. So the really early machines, before they would really be called computers, you would any uh, essentially program that you wanted it to run, you would have to code that in into this individual switches, and then it would do that thing. If you wanted it to do a different type of program, a different calculation, you have to go back in and change all those switches manually. It's very difficult. As computers evolved, we developed, started to develop programming languages. And so the way to think about this is almost like a Rosetta Stone in the sense that it's a language that we can input commands into that the computer will then understand in binary. And that part that's where this code, what it does in binary, is sort of happening behind the scenes based on the language. That's why um, in computer language, like order is very important and syntax is very important. And this is where language, uh, computer languages start to get very different from human languages, is that they're, they're artificial creations. So there's no, every part of the language is defined as it's written because it's developed by a person to serve a particular task. And statements are either valid or contain an error, right? So you either have missed a quotation mark somewhere and it won't work, or it's going to work and the computer will understand your instructions. Again, versus human language, whereas you can make a structurally unsound sentence and still be understood. Right? Like what you're saying with Excel, right? Like if you're going to put in a function and you type, you have one extra thing or one thing goes wrong, the whole thing stops working. Yeah, exactly. And so within computing language, there's no synonyms, there's no allegories, there's no analogies or references. It's, it's the strict set of instructions the computer is going to understand. And even breaking down into like, like I think of like, is it HTML where you have like, it's every color has a string of numbers. 
or a string of well, letters or something. Yeah, a yeah. lot of them do like hex code, right? Yeah, is a way a lot of times uh, graphic designers will use that to communicate colors to each other, and it is it's a series of letters and numbers together that communicate a specific set of RGB or whatever other color language that you're using. As opposed to being like, like instead of telling your computer like, oh, this is blue, this is yeah. cyan, you're like, no, this is. F F F zero zero. Now a program <laughs> zero. So you but you could you could have layers of a program where you could say this program is gonna if I say change text to blue or whatever the set of instructions needs to be, but I've told my computer that blue equals this this hex yeah. code, then I can describe it as blue. But you're right. If I need if I want that blue to be slightly different, I need to program in a different hex code. It's like it's like building translation layers into your code. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or it's just like one program that you might use that needs to communicate to the operating system of your computer, right? Or like programs that communicate to each other but have different computing languages and things like that. Um, like, the, like making things user-friendly means like more layers of this. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, that's why, you know, the early computer systems used to just be like a blank screen where you could input strings of text, yeah. essentially. The matrix screens. Yeah, but now your computer is running so many processes in the background with there's so many thousands and thousands and thousands of lines of code that even make your screen appear, appear the way it is because every single one of those things needs to be a command. It's something that I would, you know, we won't get too deep into now because I think it's just so complex that it just deserves its own kind of topic. But just to do, to kind of finish off a comparison of computing languages to human language. Um, so computer languages don't really evolve in the same way. There are, there's a sort of almost like a version control, like languages will expand, some will like very similar to uh, human languages, some will kind of fall out of vogue, they won't be as useful. Kind of like slang where it's like um, a sort of evolution to computer languages like, oh, okay, well this new version of C is better for doing these sorts of things, so we're gonna not do, you know, we kind of retire older versions and things like that. Um, but there's, you know, no errors, there's no imperfections, there's no room for interpretation. Uh, it's logical, precise, and unambiguous. It's the Spock of language. Yeah, well, but, exactly, it's, right. It's the, it's the full Vulcan of language, not the Spock. Well, exactly, and that's the third the thing too, right? It's dictated by logic. It's on or it's off. It's, you know, strict rules in a strict environment. However, there are some similarities as well, right? They're both used for communication. It's just in this case, it's for a human being to communicate orders to a computer, right? Um, semantics and syntax are really important in a computing language, like human language. But it's some of those other things like morphology that don't, and phonetics and things like that that don't come along with a computing language. Um, and every language will have its own set of components, different variables, functions, use of parentheses, certain symbols that's unique to that coding language. Uh, and within those languages, there are groups, right? So um, things like Java or HTML5, uh, I don't know if those two are related specifically, but like Java is more used for like um, internet design and things like that. And then you'll have, there's the whole group of C so there's like C sharp or C plus plus, and they're used for different things. But they're all come from a similar similar lineage of computing languages. Oh. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the the very very you know mild flyover of programming languages. I do think we will, like you know let us know if this is something that's of interest to people, and we'll dive into it more. We have some stuff that we didn't cover here, um, just because like it's more about computers and how they work why computers don't yeah. handle certain tasks certain uh, you know well and things like that um, that I think would be better served in its own topic yeah it, it's it's a big enough topic that it deserves its own yeah its own go at it mm -hmm. so if you liked this little appetizer and you would like a main course of computers and <laughs> computer science and 
uh, computer language, let us know. Mm -hmm. And you can let us know on our socials at at temporary expert, just one expert on Twitter, or at temporary experts on Instagram. You can find us there. You can also find, uh, you can talk to me, and I will tell Davis all the things you say if you find Third Sock from the Sun on Facebook, or I'm on Instagram as well. I always make sure to post about our new shows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was good. Um, any sum summarizing thoughts about language you want to cap us off with? Cool, bro. Yeah, I think it was really interesting. <laughs> I, I thought this, I, you know, it's not very often that we think about language as a scientific pursuit. Yeah. Um, because it's, it is, it's sort of one of those, like, it, it's so interestingly straddles this line between like a humanities and a science and, and it's just so you know, ubiquitous like it's yeah. just everywhere all the time so we don't think about you're it. immersed in it yeah you know? and you don't most people don't think about the way language affects them yeah. super specifically or if they do they it, like you can go like kind of too far down this road really easily where anything anyone says can be attributed with malice yeah. you're like no most people just don't think about language that much yeah exactly yeah. exactly uh, yeah, most people are not being that nefarious behind their planning of their use of language. Yeah. It, it is, it's super interesting. Um, so we got a couple of things that we might talk about for next time. You know, computers, I think at some point we'll, we'll want to cover. Um, cults too. Cults too. Uh, there was some big news this week about the human genome. Yeah. They finally completed a no-gap sequence, which has some big implications for research and things like that. So we might do, take a, we might take a detour and cover that next, but. Uh, if you have things you want us to cover, of course, let us know at the aforementioned um, social media platforms. You can find yeah. us on the three big ones, not TikTok. We're not That's there true. Yet. We're not on TikTok. We're not. Uh, we're not young and hip enough. I, I can't. I can't figure out how to do those shuffle dances that all the kids are doing. So I can't get on TikTok <laughs> just yet. Um, yeah. Anything else? Any other closing thoughts you want to add? No. All right. Well, uh, that takes us through today's topic. Uh, thanks, everybody, uh, for all of us here at Temporary Experts. She's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and we have been your temporary, temporary experts. experts. Thanks for listening.